Welcome to Nobel Prize Conversations and this encore presentation of our February 2014 talk with Physiology or Medicine Laureate Barry Marshall. I'm Claire Brilliant and I'm here with our host Adam Smith. Hi Adam. Hi Claire. <laughs> here we are again. What a lot of funny things we end up doing together over the years. <laughs> and it has been many years, hasn't it? <laughs> it seems to be forever. It's <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> it's hard to believe because looking back on these conversations, uh, which were around 10 years ago, uh, we've worked together for more than double that time, Adam. Although we weren't at Nobel then, we were working together back in 2005 when Barry Marshall was awarded his Nobel Prize. Indeed, uh, and that... Um, prize for the discovery of the link between Helicobacter pylori and gastric ulcers was one I remember well because it really captured the public imagination. Yeah, and I mean, that doesn't sound so dangerous, but his methods were quite unusual, is that right? Yes, he, he gained a daredevil reputation for experimenting on himself. Uh, he became frustrated because people just didn't believe that there was a link between the bacterium, which wasn't supposed to be able to live in the stomach, and stomach ulcers. Uh, so he just drank a concoction of the bacterium from a conical flask himself gave himself gastric disease and then had to cure himself with antibiotics. So it proved the point in a rather dramatic way. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think we get some insight as to perhaps why Barry Marshall was so fearless. Um, he talks about this in relation to his childhood, but I think that comes through in his attitude to experimentation in science later in life. Yes, he's not much interested in received wisdom. He's just interested in finding things out for himself. Um, and uh, that sense of inquiry seems to know few boundaries. It was really interesting to hear him talk about the internet at the time was such a new thing in terms of <laughs> in terms of what it gave him. It's funny that, isn't it? Um, it does seem like a slightly different world where he talks about the fact that he's one of the first laureates to use a blog, <laughs> yes. and the power of the internet to make the world smaller. Things that uh, you know we kind of take for granted now. You assume kind of it's always like it's been today. But actually, it changes things radically. And it's really interesting to get this snapshot of how we thought about the internet and blogging 10 years ago. Exactly. I, th I think it's a, it's a good, good point now to, to listen to Barry in his own words. Yeah. So now it's time. Let's, uh, let's listen to this second episode in our encore presentation of Nobel Prize Conversations with Barry Marshall. Hello, Barry Marshall here. I'm really pleased to have the possibility of talking. Well, we're coming up, to, uh, we'll talk about it later, but we're coming up to the anniversary of it, which is Easter, of course. Yes, exactly. What was the actual date of the experiment? Well, probably 7th of April. I'd have to look on my blog. <laughs> 7th of April. It's interesting you do blog, because not many laureates do. Um, what started you off on that? Um, well, um... There, there were things that, um, you know, the rumour mill, mill uh, operates and uh, things that, I, that uh, people find out about me get blown out of proportion, then reported in the press, and then they turn up on different websites, etc. which is... And so often to set the record straight, uh, it's worthwhile having a blog to get in there and actually say exactly what happened. And then uh, the other place you can do that is Wikipedia, which you have to get in and edit every now and again. <laughs> so one of the famous yeah. rumours about me <laughs> was that I was the Australian yo-yo champion several years in a, in a row. And uh, the actual truth was I won the, the heats in my age group in Perth, <laughs> uh, but was knocked out in the finals. So 
I did win a K- 24 bottles of Coca-Cola, which was delivered <laughs> to my house uh, in the street, and all the local kids all had a bottle of Coke that afternoon <laughs> on a hot day. So it was pretty. I was pretty famous locally within a 100-yard radius of my house. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I can... I can still uh, play yo-yo. You can. Some, you can. A bit, anyway. Can you do tricks with them? Mm. Well, I can do a couple of tricks, yeah. Oh, that was that. Uh, I wouldn't put any money on me in a competition. <laughs> Is there a YouTube video out there somewhere of Barry Marshall doing you doing yo-yo tricks? Uh, there, there's probably one in Japan somewhere, because I, I think I, they, they did get one off me for the um, uh, Science Museum in Tokyo, and I, I did some um, yo-yo tricks tricks there for one of the um, reporters for their website at least in the in the child population of london i'd say it's a declining art but maybe it's growing in japan I know. Well, it's quite interesting they have uh, i've got half people actually present me with yo-yos sometimes when i turn up and ask me to do a trick but uh, i have probably half a dozen different ones and they are fabulous yo-yos you can get these days they often have uh, automatic um, leds in them and uh, automatic clutch so they'll spin nicely so the technology's really moved on quite a lot, and uh, probably uh, it's something that's going to come back. All these things have their cycle. Do you, so do you still play for relaxation, or just, or just when you're asked to give a demonstration? Uh, well, I have to say that every month or so I might get one out and have a go at it, and I'm looking around on the left and I can see three of them on my shelf with my collection of different junky different <laughs> items and things. So um, I... Any, any kind of interesting junk that I've collected during my life, I tend to stick up on the shelves uh, next to my uh, work area because I, because I work at home about a third of the time. Uh, often I'm just communicating with somebody or today uh, I was working on Skype for several hours with somebody finishing a, a paper. So uh, as, as you get more into uh, research, a lot of the time these days is actually spent on the web and... Uh, communicating with colleagues, etc. Mm. So, I wanted to start by just asking about. I mean, the fact that you're an Australian laureate uh, and living in Australia uh, makes you part of quite a sf- small community. Um, although Australia's produced a good number, uh, what's it like doing science in Australia these days? It's a lot easier than it was. I always felt that Australia was about three years behind the rest of the world. That was in the eighties. But and now I think we're just like any other Western country, and we're within we, within a few months, say three to six months of anything happening in the UK or US or Europe. Um, it's pretty well known about in Australia. Uh, part of that, obviously, that's partly due to publications, the internet, and uh, various news feeds that you might uh, keep up to date with. Uh, collaborating, co- talking to your colleagues. Um, but I do think that the Australians need to go to an international meeting each year because quite often the abstracts and posters and the new ideas of speaking to investigators on new technologies is done at the poster sessions rather than the formal sessions in the conferences. Mm. You mentioned earlier that um, a lot of a scientist's life is spent on the internet and so you can keep up with pretty much everything that's going on but i yeah it was that that physical isolation that that was that's interesting is there though an advantage in in place where australia is that in europe there are lots of meetings going on and it's easy to 
get around, but at the same time we're very far away from Asian science, for instance, physically, mm. whereas you're placed quite close to that. Mm. that you, you make a strong point there. Uh, the growing area in a lot of sciences and uh, technologies is Asia, particularly led by China. So even though China is having a bit of a quiet year, they're still growing at 7%. They're still funding far more uh, scientists and uh, uh, far more new technologies uh, than most other countries. So it's actually pretty active here in Asia. And if I have uh, you know, several choices, um, I can quite often choose to uh, go to a meeting in, in Japan or Korea or China, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and, and uh, sort of get the same uh, opportunities that I might go if, might get if I go to Europe, often uh, less sophisticated. Um, but there is a lot of research going on, particularly in helicobacter stomach diseases, with uh, new uh, observations being made. Mm-hmm. I mean, how important do you think it is that that there is a, a a good international mix of people working on any one area, any one problem? Does it matter what the nationalities are? Uh, not so much the nationalities, but of course people have a different slant on it uh, in different countries. Um, I think that you will we'll, we'll be able to tease out some of the helicobacter uh, variability by having people study helicobacter in different countries, and I think that probably we'll find there are dietary components overlaying any kind of uh, gastric diseases. Obviously, uh, if you have a totally different diet, something that just sits on the surface of your stomach is going to be quite different uh, in one country versus another. So I'm interested in that, and I think that sort of thing will be teased out in uh, Asian studies. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is they use it, for, uh, the Chinese studies are very useful for testing hypotheses in humans. So you might say, I think that this kind of helicobacter and this gene on the uh, tox- this toxin gene is the key thing for stomach cancer. Uh, right, so let's that's a great idea. So you take it out of the genomics lab in, in London or somewhere and you go and study uh, 5,000 people in Beijing. It takes you about a year if, with, with a good Chinese group. Uh, and you come back and say it's totally irrelevant or it's looking interesting. That's the sort of thing. Yeah. In fact, uh, a lot, there's, a, there's a lot of good theories that have actually gone down the drain after being tested in China and, and not being uh, seen to be particularly important. to talk about you and what made you into the person you are um, what kind of childhood did you have? Um, well obviously I was an interesting fairly smart kid um, and I did have all kinds of uh, stimulation because my father was a mechanic uh, um, an engineer he worked on a whaling station as a fitter or diesel mechanic worked on whaling boats, he worked on crayfishing boats, but he was also 
doing weekend work on different things and then became a refrigeration engineer. So all these different technologies were actually continually laid out for me as he was credentialed over the first probably 10 or, 10 or 12 years of my life before he settled down into a, mm. a, into his main career. Uh, and What was his main career in the end? Well, ultimately, he ran, he ran a, a chicken factory, a chicken processing factory, and he built that factory in the late 60s. In the 60s somewhere, Kentucky Fried became globalised. Right. And so all of a sudden in Perth, Western Australia, maybe 1964, 65, Kentucky Fried Chicken came to Perth. And the consumption of chicken in Australia went from special food that you had on special days, like once a month for Sunday dinner, to something that you could have two or three times a week if you wanted it. There's frozen chicken everywhere. Um, and so his being in the refrigeration business and the meat processing business, uh, his company really started producing massive amounts of chicken until they were supplying 40,000 chickens a day. So it was a very big operation. It ended up being quite sophisticated. And uh, I think my father was always a little bit... Um, uh, had a bit of an inferiority complex that he didn't have a tertiary education, but not, not many pe- people did in uh, 1950. And uh, but he did have uh, a good uh, tradesman's ticket, and he was he, he was probably one of the smarter tradesmen. Uh, and so that he he actually built on that with various other uh, training courses. So, for instance, he had certification ultimately on Caterpillar marine diesels and then he had refrigeration etc so uh, there was always a lot of technology and quite interesting books around that i could read on thermodynamics so maybe maybe what it did for me was just make me fearless about technology and uh, i could look at medicine or electronics or engineering uh and or even look at a trade so uh, carpentry seems like a lot of fun but I could look at all those things and say, well, you know, I could do any one of those. I don't see that there's any difficulty with them. That is very important, isn't it? Because the lack of fear, that the feeling that you could build it yourself and you don't have to rely on somebody else's knowledge and therefore, for instance, that piece of equipment, you don't just have to trust it's giving you the answer it should, it's giving you. You can find out why it's giving you that answer. That's some- true. So even when, so whenever I came across something that was very difficult to understand or seemed very difficult or technical it seemed to me i just had to find the right person who knew about it and then they would transfer the knowledge or the understanding and i wasn't interested in learning stuff i was just interested in understanding because i could see what a fabulous shortcut it always was um and um so i think my father was quite a good teacher in that uh anything that he knew uh, he could teach me in five minutes um, and some of my teachers at school were like that. But I, you know, I had a great chemistry teacher. I had a great physics teacher. Um, I mentioned recently that uh, one of the Christian brothers, one of the brothers actually gave us, with a boys' school, one of the brothers gave us the sex education lectures. And that was excellent as well. So quite surprising, <laughs> really. <laughs> Somehow he had understanding. <laughs> Yes, I he was a bit of a character, so it might have had an interesting background. And so was it by was it by chance that you fell into doing medicine, or was it a was it a passion that was growing within you as a teenager? Well, my mother was a nurse, so as well as my dad's technical books, we really um, 
there wouldn't have been much reading material in my house. There were some people with dad's trades books and engine books, etc. Maybe there's 10 of those. And then there would have been my mother's nursing books because she did nursing. And uh, so there, there was, you know, anatomy and physiology based in about the, the, the um, you know, 1952 vintage, post-World War II vintage. And, um, well, it, it, I don't know how good the... Um, Physiology and anatomy, uh, physiology and biochemistry and that in there was probably fairly superficial, but uh, there was a pretty good understanding of disease processes and uh, the anatomy, which I was very interested in and mm. looking through. Um, and I probably read those books cover to cover at different times when I was home with the chicken pox or the measles. We only had a radio until I was about uh, 12 years old, then we got TV. Mm. So there was really nothing to do if you were at home by yourself except find books to read <laughs> uh, but but it's interesting the, the the differentiation between learning and understanding um yeah. it's obvious but at the same time i don't know whether our school systems these days realize the difference what do you think um i there's a, you, you do have to have a, a basic uh, level of knowledge to actually be able to pick out the important new thing uh, so even in medicine, uh, I felt that uh, medicine, I think, it takes a while for you to get the, to make a discovery because you have to understand the, the current paradigm, the problems that exist, what's rare and what's common, and then you can see the opportunity or the new observation or develop a new idea for treating or something. But I, I do think it takes you maybe at least five years in clinical practice, seeing a lot of patients before you know that what you're seeing is an unusual thing or you've got a new idea or, or a relevant observation. Uh, so it just so happened that uh, when when I met Robin Warren, he showed me these bacteria. I wasn't interested in ulcers in those days. Looking down the microscope, I say, yes, well, I agree with you, Robin. There's absolutely no doubt these things are growing in the stomach and the stomach should be sterile. So that, that's great. Let's figure out how they live there. Mm. So... Um, if I hadn't didn't have a bit of a, a, a knowledge, a general knowledge of uh, gastroenterology and internal medicine microbiology, I wouldn't have been able to see the importance of Robin's observation, and then I might have gone off doing something else. So there were lots of other interesting projects I could have done, but I chose that one. Luckily, <laughs> yes. But then this is a very good point at which you know it, it's the difference between learning and understanding again because. You need to learn enough to recognise the importance of, of the phenomenon, but not learn so much that you're totally committed to the paradigm, the existing paradigm, and therefore say things can't grow in the stomach, and this is just impossible. That's true, that's true. If you, you, you have to just be extremely sceptical of anything, and, and the people are taught this now in school. So I think th this is something that's happened in the last 10 years uh, in most educational programs. Let's teach the kids how to be sceptical, how to evaluate new data and reject stuff that's not proven and accept uh, things that are proven or look for the, the evidence and then move on with a solid base rather than having all these very fuzzy uh, bits of foundation knowledge which have never actually been checked out. Um, so that that is where we want... <laughs> it's very sad that your grandchildren are questioning everything you want to tell them. <laughs> so you have to accept that they're probably smarter than you are. <laughs> Well, kids these days are totally fearless about technology, uh, which is nice. So they will 
you could put them in front of any kind of a computer and the next minute they'll be on the web, they'll find their favourite game, they'll be doing... Um, oh, what, there's, there's, a, there's a game they're all playing, which is where you construct these walls all over the place. Minecraft. Minecraft. <laughs> yes, I, I'm suffering with that too. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know what my grandson's plan is, but he probably wants to be uh, like the world best Minecraft player at age nine or something like that. He's got a, there's a chance he could do it, I think. Oh, goodness. Right, OK. Well, I better not introduce him to my eight-year-old because it sounds like my eight-year-old would be a bit phased by your, your grandson's abilities. Mm, so it's a careful balance. Like, just when I was a kid, because we had brothers and sisters and, um, you know, everybody was pretty busy just staying alive, I think. If you look at what your mother used to do in those days, of, you know, the washing and the cooking and getting the groceries and, you know, taking the kids here and there and walking up to the vaccine clinic, you know, taking everything, taking half a day to do. You can see why kids in the 50s and 60s weren't very well supervised compared with today. You know, nowadays, every mother knows where her kid is within 10 metres at any second. Mm. They've got tracking devices on, probably. So um, we used to get up to some mischief and do a lot of dangerous experiments so but luckily my brothers and i and my sister all got through in one piece but i think there were a lot of risky activities that went on you know when i was a kid that you probably wouldn't let your kids do these days so that takes us straight into (laughs) into you and your personal risk um when you decide to drink a bacterial culture, you, I suppose, are the poster child for self-experimentation and kind of ignoring the risks. There's not many of us. Maybe the others all died. <laughs> <laughs> um, how worried by the risk were you when you drank that culture? Well, I was, I was worried. Um, it, what had happened was that I had... Uh, had some animal studies planned where we were trying to infect animals, pigs, rats, etc. In uh, in the research uh, animal uh, animal research area at Royal Perth Hospital with the Helicobacter, so we had these plans. I had submitted a uh, application for these experiments, and in the application, I said, "Well, at the end, if it didn't work in animals, we would really have to move on and do a human experiment to see if the bacteria could infect humans because." They seem to be human pathogens. So that was uh, like a throwaway line at the end of um, my, the uh, research application that I had in. And that ha- that was done a year before I'd actually did the self-experiment. So obviously I'd had that in the back of my mind for at least a year and had discussed it with people, even my wife, but, but not actually recently when I did the experiment. So it was done. Finally, I decided, you know, I have to find out the result of this uh, experiment. I have to get this information. Can this bug, which everyone said was probably a commensal and irrelevant, could it infect a healthy person and lead to all this gastric inflammation, which seemed to be, which could potentially be the underlying problem in people with ulcers? Mm. So it was an important question. And by the time that 18 months had gone by, we'd exhausted all other avenues of research. We didn't really have cell cultures that we could experiment with very much. 
and um, so I said, okay, well, I have, to, I have to do it on somebody. I should do it on myself because nobody really could assess the risk apart from my, me. No one knows enough about it. And all our work was still unpublished. And uh, I discussed it with Robin at some point, and then uh, my, my boss in microbiology, I, I kind of put a, threw away a few hypothetical lines to him at one day at morning tea, I think, and then I went ahead with the planning the experiment, which was initially to get some endoscopy biopsies from myself to show there was no gastritis. I did not have helicobacter at baseline. Mm. And then I chose a bacterium which was susceptible to antibiotics. So I said, well, there's a good chance I could get rid of it. And the third thing was that myself and a couple of groups in England had done some serum epidemiologies like serum surveys of blood donors that could show that 30-40% of blood donors, apparently healthy people, had helicobacter. They couldn't even remember when they caught it. So as far as I was concerned, there was a very good chance that it was going to be asymptomatic Mm. And then we'll see what happened. Would I get an ulcer eventually? So that you know, when you think of all those, put all those facts in, and think about it carefully. Ob- the obvious thing would be to do human experiment. Um, so then the next question was, if it's such an important question, should I ask an ethics committee to make a decision on whether or not I can do it? Mm. Uh, well, if they said no, I still would have done it. Yes, I mean, can they so can they regulate can they regulate self experimentation? Is are there regulations on it? I have to say that they usually bail out. Hmm. I haven't. I'm not going to tell you what my current plans are, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but they they usually bail out and um, let you do it right. nowadays. I think yeah. Yeah. they say, well. You know, we don't know as much about it, but it's it's just a risk you would take. Mm. So, did you ask permission when you drank your culture, or did you just do it? I just did it. Mm. My my lab tech knew about it. I said, next Tuesday we're going to I'm going to drink Helicobacter. Mm. Can you grow grow me up some plates of Helicobacter? You- and uh, so I turned up that. I'd already had the endoscopy, of course, and my boss had said to me, so at the beginning of my endoscopy list, which was starting at 8 o'clock in the morning, so at 7.15, 7.45, I asked my boss to pass the scope on me and take a few biopsies. And he said to me, Barry, I don't know why I'm doing this and I don't want you to tell me. <laughs> so, so he went ahead and did it. But then, so then uh, straight away, um, I, so I had the endoscopy without any anesthesia and straight away did my endoscopy list and a few weeks later I was then ready to uh, drink the bacteria which I cultured from a patient. And um, so I think it was a Tuesday morning and I think it was about the 10th of July. Yeah, I think it was 10th of July, um, 1984. And... Um, I drank it, yeah, and um, felt fine. But do you remember that? Was there was there a sudden moment of um, uh, contemplation of backing out as, as the as the vial I can came tell to you your lips? Exactly what it was like. <laughs> I can tell you exactly what it was like. Can you imagine uh, being in the army and they give you a bit of training on how to jump off a a, a little wooden thing? 
uh, with your parachute strapped to your back so you get a feel for it a few times and then the next minute you're up in a plane and the doors open. Mm-hmm. And they say, right, hook on and jump. Mm. So it was like that. It had been well planned and statistically you were going to survive, should be fine, but it was completely uh, jumping out into the unknown. You, I had no idea where it was going to go at that point. Obviously, if I became infected and developed gastritis, which is what happened, then I was going to follow that research lineup. If nothing happened, then that meant the whole question was a lot harder than I thought, uh, and I could be wrong. So I'd have to, that would have meant if I continued in research, I would have had my head, to put my head down for a few years and work harder on animal models, try to figure out what was going on. Uh, it wasn't just going to be straightforward. Mm. But uh, because we had the, the, the result of, of gastritis, uh, bacterial cultures and everything, um, then it really did put a fire under the, the boiler, if you like, uh, of, of my research. And uh, right, you know, this, is, this does seem to be the way to go. Let's follow it up. Uh, let's try out different antibiotics, etc. Mm. So um, it was pretty exciting. Um, but what came out of that study was the information about the acute H. pylori infection. And I know uh, an awful lot about this now. But then nobody had described it. No one knew anything about acute H. pylori infection. It didn't really exist. Mm. And uh, so when I was writing up that paper, I wrote a first draft. It was really just a description of the biopsy, the appearance with histology. And uh, I was rather short and I was putting it together and I showed it to my colleague uh, John Armstrong who was the electron microscopist and uh, he said Barry you've left a lot, of, a lot out of this and I said well what, what do you mean he said well that week you took the bacteria you looked terrible and you had halitosis you had such a bad breath <laughs> and I said well hang on my mother said I had a bad breath my wife said I did as well and so I went back to the lab and asked them, asked the work colleagues. They said, yes, but we were too polite. You know, we didn't like to tell you. <laughs> so I had been had a very, very lonely week when I did that experiment because I was doing other work. But everyone had moved out of my lab into the next lab and was just leaving me there by myself. <laughs> so I was working late and I'd be sitting there in the lab all by myself preparing samples at 8 o'clock at night thinking, oh, God, I can't, I can't keep this up. It's not much of a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but so the, the H. pylori was in there brewing, and then I started having vomiting attacks and everything, and I'm wondering, well, this is a bit weird. Um, I don't usually do this. I wonder if it's the bacteria. So then, then I had the biopsies. So I was yeah. a bit nervous about putting anything clinical into that paper because it's very subject, subjective. Yeah. And you, you're just talking about yourself. And he was saying, well, well, obviously you would say that. Mm. Uh, so there was a bit of that in it. And so that's why the paper was written in that the person as a subject, that person did that, that, that. Um, and it wasn't until about four years later that I owned up to the fact that it was me. Mm. That's interesting. Four mm. years, gosh. Was there any lasting damage to your stomach from the experiment? Well, I don't, I don't think there was, but I, I did have um, vomiting attacks for a few days. Mm-hmm. So those long years of being disbelieved by the community at large, 
but on the other hand being believed by quite a lot of patients who came to you for treatment mm, correct must have been must have been confusing in a way to be popular and unpopular <laughs> yes well it was, it was a little bit frustrating because all the usually what would happen if you discovered a new uh, treatment if you discovered the cause of um, something that there was absolutely no treatment for everyone would say it's a miracle we'll take this we need something but to discover the cause of ulcers and have a new treatment treatment was rather complicated uh, on a background of everybody thought they already had the answer anyway it was the acid blocking drugs and the new every year there was a new one so we had um, Tagamet, Zantac really coming out getting rolled out all through the 80s and then at the end of the 80s, we had a meprazole coming out, mm. which was even stronger, so that was going to be even better. It's not like people were waiting around for helicobacter to be discovered. So it was a bit frustrating for me that uh, I'd really <laughs> discovered the cause of ulcers for 10 years too late. If we'd done it in the 70s, well, then it would have really been a miracle to be able to take amoxicillin and d or something. Um, so it's a bit harder to get it accepted uh, when there was no longer a, a super need for it. There was, right. there was actually a need from the patients because they knew they were not better. But as far as the medical community was concerned, the wonder drugs had made such a difference that they, they stopped being concerned about ulcers. So, so they'd, uh, had, they'd ameliorated symptoms but couldn't remove the underlying cause? That's right. And, and the fact that patients had to keep taking these $3 a day medicines didn't really affect the medical profession very much. In Australia, of course, the government paid for them. In America, most people probably had them on their insurance uh, or had to pay for, for them. That, but I ended up in America at that stage, and there were people in America who didn't have insurance who were paying $1,000 a year for their drugs. So I noticed a difference in the United States. People would come from miles to possibly find something that would cure them and get them off these expensive medications. There were a number of things like that that happened in the States because it was not socialised medicine. Um, whereas in Australia and probably in the UK, it was all a bit muted because everybody could actually get something for, in quotes, free uh, if they had an ulcer. So in the United States, we used to have all kinds of people coming from different places. Um, one of the interesting ones that turned up one day was a, a fellow who was a US Air pilot. And because he was a pilot, he was not allowed to take any psychotropic drugs. And one of these drugs was potentially metronidazole because in the fine print it said some people get neuropathy or hallucinations or something. So he could not actually take a H. pylori antibiotic treatment without... Um, stopping flying. Mm. So he used to come down and have his ulcer check up and his uh, medication prescribed when he was on his Christmas holidays. He used to, I think he worked from out of Chicago or somewhere, but he used to secretly fly down to Charlottesville, Virginia, see me get on the treatment and then take it for two weeks and then when Helicobacter was gone, he would then start work again at the end of his holiday. So interesting people like that used to turn up. Would you say that your that the the impact of um, HP treatment 
on 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 people was held back by that time by that by if you if you like vested interests in the other treatments i think it was and uh there's two ways it could happen obviously they could oppose it and say we don't believe it but if, as soon as they do that they give it some oxygen if you like mm. some credibility in that they are opposing it so the better strategy was what most companies uh, adopted you know they just would not comment on it hmm. uh, so there were a few experts who would uh, stick their neck out and say they didn't believe it and then they would get on the lecture circuit with op- opposed to me and we would have debates in at UCLA or different places about it um, so there was there was a lot of mileage in that um, but the best thing to do was just to continue on as if Helicobacter never existed because there was so much money going into H2 blocker research that the H2 blocker and acid uh, suppression uh, information would swamp anything we could muster from Helicobacter treatment studies. And so we would, we would actually get a lot of publicity from small studies and, uh, and, and from research meetings, etc., uh, far out of proportion to the millions of dollars that were being spent on the H2 blockers and the Meprazole uh, in, the, in the 80s. Um, mm. But I, they probably did delay the rollout of helicobacter treatment by five years just by doing what they were already doing and ignoring it. One slightly unusual aspect of this sort of global group of patients who came to you is that you were able to start the, this Helicobacter pylori foundation from donations you received from them mm. well I'd, I'd never thought of anything like that but um, in uh, in the early 90s as I was saying we've seen some high flyers at the University of Virginia and um, one of you know one of the patients just said to me oh Dr Marshall can I make a donation to your research and I said Sure, thank you very much. And I spent, you know, fifty dollars or something, and he mm. wrote out a cheque straight away for three thousand dollars, which was a fairly significant donation as far as I was concerned. And uh, oh, I said thanks very much. And then I had to spend weeks trying to figure out how to launder this money into my <laughs> university research account without the dean taking twenty percent off the top. <laughs> so <laughs> I then spoke to some colleagues. One of them was uh, Dr. Steve Zinn. At the, from he's now at Chief Medicine University of Maryland, and uh, Steve said, Barry, Barry, you should start a foundation, and then the money can go in there, and you can spend it on whatever you want. So I did that, and at the same time, the internet was invented, and I was interested in that because of my electronics interests and uh, computing. So I contracted somebody then to, with actually out of my own pocket, um, to start up a website and uh, and then I had the uh, Helicobacter Foundation registered as a tax-exempt entity in the United States. Um, and we used to then, what I did, so before people were really conscious of the value of the internet, I had an internet site in Virginia, which was the Helicobacter Foundation, putting out um, information uh, about Helicobacter and, and it was quite interesting that it really did have quite a take-up. So Pretty soon there was millions of people on America Online who could access it. Mm. And um, quite often, the, the reason I did it, because a lot of people were getting interested in Helicobacter and they would say, oh, Dr. Marshall, can you send us a couple of pictures of Helicobacter? We want to do a story. So it became very repetitive then. 
and uh, I would say, well, just go to this website and this directory and you get some pictures there. There's a picture of me, there's a picture of Dr. Warren, helicobacter, etc. Uh, so having it already meant that, uh, meant that uh, we actually were able to roll out lots of publicity about helicobacter pylori on five minutes' notice. Hmm. And so then uh, we had some uh, news stories, ABC News, CNN, etc. And um, then one, someone did a, um, a, a fold-out. There was a magazine in the Sunday newspaper called Parade that was distributed to 40 million homes. And we did a helicobacter article there and put a link to a website on the bottom of it had contact Dr. Marshall for, small inf- for more information, send $10.00. And in a stamped addressed envelope, and we'll send you some information about it and take to your doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we had 40,000 letters. <laughs> uh, we only had a tiny little mailbox, so the, the post office, if, if we didn't pick up the mail for three days, the whole post office would be filled up with cardboard boxes full of mail for us. <laughs> so <laughs> I suddenly realised the power of the internet. Um, and we... we uh, Probably, probably got about sixty or seventy thousand dollars just from that one article, and funded a research fellow from Korea for a couple of years uh, in my lab in Virginia. So, uh, I since then I've always kept that foundation going. So that's helico.com, and we have a, quite an active forum there. Anybody can get on and post their symptoms, questions about antibiotics, etc. And if they have a question that's a bit technical someone in my lab will try to answer it and if it's a really a new thing or very tricky um, we'll have a bit of a, a, a little meeting about the difficult questions on the site and we'll I'll post I'll, I've got about a hundred posts on that website mm. I think so it's fairly up to date. A lot of people would be quite scared about opening themselves up to that kind of worldwide questioning uh, you know are going to be deluged by stuff never deal with it but obviously you just take it in your stride. Um, it's it's a, something that uh, is a big responsibility. So, you know, if I, if someone asks a question about the side effects from an antibiotic, and if you actually look on the website, you can find things like this, um, and whether they should take it with this or that drug, well, then you might see about a hundred words of a reply from me with a bit of a reference at the end of it. And you say, oh, well, that was you know, Dr. Marshall. He just knows that stuff. But in fact. I probably spent four hours doing research on Sunday morning, mm. l- reading the articles. Might have called somebody. And last time I did it, you know, I called somebody in Michigan at eight o'clock at night, asked him about this paper he'd written. And so that it's it's not something I do lightly. And um, so we try to we try to give the right answers. Um, and the advantage to us is that we are receiving input from all around the world as to what's going on in a particular country regarding helicobacter. Uh, obviously, by, by looking at where we get um, hits from our, on our website reports, we can see where people are searching for helicobacter from. So you can see that uh, people in Florida have a lot more helicobacter than people in Minnesota. Um, and um, if there's anything new, uh, Someone might be telling us about it. We, we learned that there's a lot of hocus-pocus and holistic uh, naturopathy and stuff like that that goes on around the world, and we're forever telling people that no, um, garlic does not cure helicobacter. <laughs> Questions <laughs> like that. <laughs> Thank you very, very much indeed. It's been 
Um, absolutely marvellous, this conversation. I can't leave, though, without just referring to one uh, famous incident, which is the fact that um, when you received your phone call uh, telling you that you'd been awarded the Nobel Prize, you and Robin Warren were sitting together having a beer by the river. <laughs> which, That's right. Which must be, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe there's somebody out there who can correct us, but uh, I, I think it's probably unique that, that the laureates have been sitting together. So... You you did you did go for a beer on the uh, together traditionally or a dinner together traditionally on the day of the medicine announcement uh, each year. That's true. Um, people had been saying to us for about ten years that you know we should win the Nobel Prize. It's very important, and I would say don't ever say that in public. It's bad luck. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, one way of never winning the Nobel Prize would be to talk about it. Um, but we did know that it was an important discovery and it would be a candidate. And um, then around about year 2002, Helicobacter seemed to be getting lots of publicity. There was lots of interest in, in it from various international groups. <clears throat> and uh, Robin and I had won several big international prizes by then. And um, so... Um, some Swedish person, I suppose, said, you know, Barry, I heard a rumour that you, your discovery's on the short list. And I said, oh, well, that's very, very nice. Let's not talk about it. Change the subject. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but at about 2002, I think, uh, we had a little conference on Helicobacter and Robin and I said, well, let's, when they, on announcement night, let's, let's go down the pub just together because we weren't working together anymore and he was retired. So I used to pick him up about four o'clock in the afternoon and take him down to the uh, brewery pub on the Swan River. We would have fish and chips and have a couple of big beers <laughs> and and then um, listen to the look on our phone or somewhere and listen to the radio, try and see if we could find out who won the Nobel Prize. And that would that information would come out about five thirty. It was just the right time, middle of the fish and chips. <laughs> And we'd stay there for about another hour, and then I'd take him home and go home. So we'd, we'd done that for about three years in a row, and it seemed to me that the helicobacter thing had totally peaked by then. And so it was about the fourth year that we had done it, and uh, that was 2005, and we were sitting there just getting our fish and chips, and he had a, a pint of Guinness. I had my pint of Swan Lager, I think. And actually, the one I used to usually drink is Emu Export. It's quite <laughs> <nice one. laughs> and uh, and then his phone rang, and um, so he was Hans. Um, who's the Jonval? Hans Jonval. Yeah, Hans Jonval uh, said to Dr. Warren, "I'm calling just to tell you that you've won the Nobel Prize." But there's a big problem. We can't find Dr. Marshall. We've been calling his home. We've called his office. There's nowhere to be found. What are we going to do? We have to announce it soon. And uh, so Robin Warren said, oh, he's here with me at the pub. We're having a beer together. <laughs> and, uh, so he handed the phone over, and then they were able to tell me that I'd shared the Nobel Prize with Robin. But if I... Hans Jornvalls years later said that uh, the committee was actually quite concerned about the fact that we were already celebrating before they had told us 
Yeah, they must have As thought there was a leak. Yeah. Yes, they, they thought we must have had the conference room bugged or something. <laughs> so they're, they're a little bit concerned about that. But I said, no, 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 no. We, we always have a beer like that on Nobel Day. <laughs> <laughs> we still try to do it. We, do, we haven't succeeded a couple of times because we've had a pretty heavy travel commitment. Sometimes one of us is at a different meeting or different country. Um, but uh, it's it's a fun tradition. We always enjoy each other's company, and we don't take anybody else with us usually, just go by ourselves. Nice story. Okay, well, it's been extremely kind of you to talk to me. I'm sorry it's late evening there now, um, but um, it's been, been a joy. Thank you. Um, okay, so if people uh, have car accidents from going to sleep during the podcast, I'd disclaim any responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it won't happen. I sincerely doubt it. Anyway, we, we talked about risk earlier. There's always a risk, but I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, I don't yeah, think so in this case. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks very much, Adam. Thank you. This podcast was presented by Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Barry Marshall, you can go to nobelprize.org where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for Nobel Prize Talks was Magnus Yulier. The editorial team for this encore production includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.